You're listening to audio from New City Church in Champaign-Urbana, Illinois. We are a gospel-centered church with a heart for the next generation, passionate about making disciples who will renew our city in the real Jesus. For more information about New City, please visit our website at www.mynewcity.church. Good morning, New City. Um, uh, for those of you who don't know me, uh, my name is Kyle. I'm one of the members here, and um, it's a great privilege to get to bring the word to you this morning. Um, because uh, Nick was unable to preach his sermon last week, I'm actually going to be preaching the same text that he was going to cover. So we're going to be looking at Colossians 3, verses 1 through 17. Um, we're con- continuing our Colossians sermon series. Uh, we're getting close to the end. Um, but yeah, we felt like it was really appropriate to preach on this text anyways because it's a, it's a pretty crucial passage in the book and it's just too good to pass up. So um, if you would mind turning in your Bibles there, if you have one of the Bibles, um, the black ones under the chairs, it's on page 984 in those Bibles. Uh, but once you've got Colossians 3 opened up, if you wouldn't mind standing, I'm gonna read the text for us and we wanna be standing in reverence for God's word as I read it. All right, so Colossians 3, we're gonna be looking at verses one through 17. It says this. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. You can be seated. Let me pray for us as we begin looking at this passage. Heavenly Father, Um, Thank you 
for your word. Thank you for giving us your truth to understand, to know your promises to understand. Jesus, thank you for being the incarnate word. Thank you for fulfilling all that has been promised to us by the Father. And Holy Spirit, thank you for opening our eyes to the truths contained in your word. Thank you for teaching us and growing us. You know better than we even know ourselves what is best for us, what we each need. So I pray that you would be moving and working amongst us this morning, edifying, encouraging, convicting, whatever each soul needs. I pray that you provide that. We are so thankful to be here this morning to worship together. Um, Jesus, be glorified this morning. I ask all this in your name, amen. All right, so I thought it would be apt to start by kind of recapping where we've been in Colossians so far. Um, Paul, um, he was imprisoned. So context, I, I can't remember if this was talked about in the previous sermons on this book, but Paul actually wrote this letter from prison. He hadn't planted the Colossian church, but Epiphras, um, someone that he did ministry with, was one of the people who helped get Colossians started and was actually visiting him while he was in prison. After Epiphras explains to Paul how well the church is doing, how it's thriving and growing, Paul decided to write this letter to them as an encouragement to that church. And so Epiphras got that letter to him, from him, brought it to the Colossians, and then they probably read it on a Sunday morning, very similar to this. Um, and so Paul is imprisoned where he hears about the church, he's encouraged by what he hears, and then um, we see in chapter one, specifically, take a look at verses nine and 10, he outlines what he hopes for for the Colossians. And I think this is really, really crucial in remembering why did he write this in the first place. So verses nine and 10, this is in chapter one, he writes this prayer. He says, and so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking, so here's, here's his prayer for the Colossians. Asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will, that is God's will, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So I think this prayer is really key because it really helps us understand why he wrote everything else in this letter. Um, Paul is using the rest of this letter to equip the church in that very regard. That very prayer that he has for them, all the rest of the things that he's saying is enabling and equipping and empowering them to live that out, to experience that growth. Um, so I mean, he's telling them, if you, if you look at chapters one and two, he's describing who Jesus is and what he has done for the Colossians. He's telling them what is true in Christ. And some people, um, you'll hear sometimes theologians talk about that being Paul's indicative portion of his letter. 
This is a style that he uses in a lot of the, in the a lot, sorry, in a lot of the letters that he writes. He'll have an indicative portion, which is he's basically communicating teaching. He's explaining who Jesus is, what is Christianity, who are we in light of God and the gospel. That's the indicative portion of his teaching. And then he'll transition to an imperative portion. Think about a lot of sermons that you hear. You'll hear uh, truth, you'll hear teaching portion, and then later, a lot of the time, you'll hear an application portion. That's kinda how Paul sets up a lot of his letters. And that's how he structures Colossians. Chapters one and two are a lot of teaching. It's looking at what is the truth of the Bible, what is the truth of Jesus Christ, and then chapters three and four, what do we do in light of that? And so that is an answer to Paul's prayer because again, thinking about verses nine and 10 in chapter one, he basically is praying for two things for the Colossians. He wants them to know God, to know who he is, to understand him, to know their relationship with him, and two, to know, to know how to live in accordance with his will. So to know what he desires of them and then to live that out. And so that's how he's structured this, this uh, whole letter, really. The first part is helping them become acquainted with God and then how do we live in obedience to him. Um, and so chapter three, verses one through 17, are an inflection point in this letter. He's transitioning into that imperative portion where he's really turning his attention now to, okay, I've just told you who Jesus is. I've just outlined the gospel for you in the last two chapters. What do you do in light of that? That's where we are beginning in chapter three. So, what is he saying in these verses? What's my main idea for this sermon? It's very straightforward. He's, what Paul is telling us in chapter three, verses one through 17, is that you are a new creation in Christ, so live like it. Live like you are one. And you'll see what I mean by that as we go. Um, I'm gonna outline my sermon just as Paul outlines this passage. So first, Paul reiterates chapters one and two through verses one through four in chapter three. So he starts chapter three by kind of quickly recapping everything that he's just laid out for them in chapters one and two. Then in light of that, and he's trying to emphasize here the fact that in Jesus, you are a new creation. Colossians, you are new people. You are not who you once were. New city, same thing. In Christ, you are a new creation. Then he goes, from verses five to 11, outlining who you once were, and let's not be that any longer. And then he goes on to, through verses 12 through 17, saying, this is who we are called to now be, because you are this new creation, you are this new person, so let's live out who we have become. And so that's how I'm gonna structure my sermon. We're gonna look at verses one through four, look at, what has Paul really taught us up until this point as what does it mean to be a new creation? Then my second point is gonna be looking at who are our old selves? What should we be turning away from? What are we putting off? And then what are we gonna be putting on in my third point as our new, new creation? So 
that's just letting you know up front, that's kind of where we're going this morning. So let's get started with that. Let's turn our attention back to verses uh, one and four. We read them just a little bit, but I want to read them again. So Colossians 3, 1 through 4 say this. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. All right, so Paul is returning to an imagery that he actually brought up in Colossians 2, verses 13 and 14. So I wanna read that for you really quick. Sorry, we're doing a lot of bouncing around in Colossians, but I think it's really cool to do because it helps show the cohesiveness of the whole letter. Paul had one through line, he had one thought that was carrying him the whole time he was writing it. And so I wanna help you see that a little bit. So Colossians 2, verses 13 and 14, he says this. Sorry, I gotta find it. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing to the cross. So he's bringing up this idea in chapter two that we were dead in our trespasses, but that has been nailed to the cross. We are no longer dead in our trespasses. We are something else. It's the same idea that he's bringing up in chapter three. If you have been raised with Christ, so he's actually talking about raised, he's not talking about like physically raised into the sky, he's talking death and resurrection. He's talking about you were dead in your trespasses, now you have been resurrected. Just as Jesus was physically and in a very real way resurrected from the dead, you have experienced that as well. You have experienced that death and resurrection. You have been raised with him. Seek therefore the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on those things, not on things of the earth. Again, verse three, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So verses one through three have been talking about what has been done. Verse four is talking about what is going to be done in the future. Um, So here's why I bring this up. Paul is painting a picture here that we have to understand if we're gonna understand really his entire theology. Paul's worldview is above all else a spiritual one. And this sounds maybe unnecessarily obvious as a thing to bring up and point out, but I think it's worth considering for a couple minutes. We are surrounded by a society that uses everything else to classify us. We live in a society that doesn't even acknowledge a lot of the time the existence of spiritual at all. Or if it does, it's just saying, that's your own personal thing, believe whatever you will. But there's no objective reality to it at all. And so our society looks at other things to classify us. Are you conservative or liberal? Are you Republican, Democrat? What color is your skin? Are you straight? Are you LGBTQ? young, old, so many different things our society uses to classify us. And we are tempted 
to think in those same kinds of ways. It's convenient. Our tribes are, are built all around us and we can settle into those kinds of tribes ourselves too. That's dangerous. Even though they can be convenient and come, sometimes they can tell us something about someone else quickly by understanding their views on certain things, the reality is there is a much more trans- transcendent reality that we as Christians need to be cognizant of above all else because that's what Paul is cognizant of above all else. Um, Paul doesn't see things the way that our society typically does. His allegiances aren't tied to those earthly things and ours shouldn't ultimately be either. When Paul thinks about the world, he sees people as they relate to God. He views all creation as falling into one of two camps, the forces of light and the forces of dark. Identity is rooted in your relationship to God, not merely on your stances you hold or feelings that you have. They are, who are you in alignment to God? The forces of light are aligned with God. They're associated with the things, as this passage phrases it, the things above. That's who this is speaking about heavenly things. The forces are on, of dark, on the other hand, are opposed to God. They're, when it talks about the things of earth here, that's what it's referring to. Another reality, so we've got that dichotomy of creation that we gotta keep in mind. That is how Paul viewed the world. Another reality that we have to keep in mind about his worldview is that everyone is born into death which kind of sounds like an oxymoron of a phrase. How are you born into death? We're all born with sin, which ultimately leads us to death. That is the understanding that Paul has. So everyone who is born, there's no, some people are born as forces of light and some are born as forces of dark. We are all born opposed to God. That is the foundational worldview of the Bible, not just Paul, of the whole Bible. Ever since Adam and Eve sinned, every human being is born in one camp. And it's the the camp that is opposed to Jesus and the Father and the Holy Spirit. And so we have to know that about ourselves. We are all born into that state and we all face ultimately the wrath of God for that, a deserved punishment for our rebellion against our creator. And apart from the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, we wouldn't even want to change sides. We would be happy with our opposition to God. But God didn't want all of humanity to be fighting against him. He didn't want us all to be in opposition to him, facing his wrath. He didn't want that. He loves humanity. And so Jesus came to earth and died so that we might also die to our old selves. And in his resurrection, we're able to be raised with him. Through faith in him and his sacrifice, we are given new lives and resurrected as creatures of light, not dark. It's where you hear the language of called out of darkness into his marvelous light, scripture says. He adopts us. We are given a new heritage and a new citizenship. If you have faith in Christ, something fundamental and existential has changed in you. 
And that's something that is so, so easy to lose sight of and to lack appreciation for. Because a lot of the time when people become Christians, there isn't, I mean, there are some exceptions to this, but it's not like this revolutionary change in every aspect of who you are. Um, you don't necessarily feel like a totally different person all of the time. But you are someone different. You are new. You are a new creation. Your alignment with the spiritual forces of the cosmos has changed. Your identity has fundamentally shifted at that point. You are now Christ's and he is now yours. He shelters and protects you. I love the way that uh, this says that your life is hidden with Christ and God. Scripture likes to use that language of being hidden in God as like a protective language. He shields us from the darkness, from the evil, from the pain of the world around us. Um, he eradicates all of the imperfections, the shame, the sin within us, and he bestows upon us honor and righteousness and innocence. He gives you his glory. Think about everything about yourself that you dislike. Everything that you're ashamed of. Think about your failures and your shortcomings. Think about terrible things that maybe others have done to you that have left you feeling dirty or unclean. Jesus takes all of that. He takes all of it away. That version of you is gone. You have been renewed and purified. You are a new man or woman. It is initially just a spiritual change, but that doesn't make it any less real. That's the thing that we have to remember. The world and even our own insecurities want us to think that our old life is still with us, that we're still that old person. But you aren't. You're a new creation. And just as verse four says, when Jesus returns, it will be fully and physically apparent to us as well. We will be radically changed when Jesus returns. What you have become spiritually will be evident to everyone externally. And it's gonna be glorious. Our faith is not meant to be an accessory in our lives. Our passage uses languages about putting off something and putting something on. But don't think of all of this change in terms of like clothing or jewelry. Um, it's not an adornment that you temporarily wear. Paul is talking in terms of death and rebirth. That's what we've experienced in Jesus Christ. It's a permanent change. Again, I've said this like a dozen times already, but you are a new creation in Jesus. These four verses um, at the beginning of chapter three are summing up what Paul has laid out in chapters one and two. You see the same theology in all of his letters. Followers of Christ have become people of light because our old selves are gone. And therefore we have, we have to live as such. Um, and that's what Paul is saying here. And that's what he's going to go on to say. In the next verses, he talks about what that practically is going to look like for us. Um, so let's turn our attention then to verses five through 11 and consider Paul's next point. 
what are we to do about our old lives? Um, I want to start, I'm not going to read the whole passage. I just want to start with the very first part of verse 5. So it says this, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. So I'll just stop there. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Notice the therefore. That means that we should do something because of the previous thought. In light of who we are in Jesus, we should do something. And what are we to do? We're supposed to put to death what is earthly in us. And I, I, I think it's so interesting and honestly a little unfortunate that the, um, the editors of the ESV, which is the version of the Bible that I'm reading, that they translate this as put to death. It's accurate, but it comes across as like overly technical kind of language to me. Uh, the language that the original Greek implies is, for lack of a better term, more intense and almost kind of brutal than this implies. Think, instead of put to death, think slay or annihilate your old self. It's, it's intense. It, there's a, a brutality to it. Do whatever you must do to eradicate your old self. That's what it's saying. And what are the members and what are your members that are on the earth that this says? Because it says, put to death therefore what is earthly in you. So that it's talking about another way that you could view this as your, your earthly members, your earthly self. Um, what he's saying here, here is kill your instruments of sin. What is it in you that leads you to sin? Give no ground to that which is in you that will lead you to that. Cut it off. End it. Paul is going to go on in the next several verses to highlight two sin patterns in this section. He's going to focus on sexual sin and harmful, hurtful speech. Um, they obviously aren't the totality of all sins that people commit, so they're not going to be everything that we're putting off. Um, so, I, you might be asking yourself, why does he focus on those two? Especially when I was looking at this passage, I was thinking to myself as I was preparing the sermon, why does he bring up those two specific things as the topics for him to like point out, this is what you need to kill in yourself? Oh. This is just speculation, but I imagine Paul is bringing up those two sin patterns for two main reasons. One, they're likely sin patterns that were particular blind spots for the Colossians. Um, you see Paul do that a lot in his letters. If he's aware of particular sin patterns or tendencies in a particular church, he'll go out of his way to address them in that letter. So that's probably part of it. And I think it's very apt because <laughs> sexual sin and harmful, hurtful, lying speech those are prevalent everywhere, especially in our own day and age. So they're very common to us also. But second, and I, pr I think probably even more significantly than that, Paul addresses those two sin patterns because they're especially good at revealing our hearts. Um, think about Jesus during the Sermon on the Mount. Um, actually, if you can, turn your Bibles back to Matthew 5. 
hold hold your hand in uh, Colossians 3 still, because we'll go back to that. But turn and look at Matthew 5 really quick. I want to point out something. So this is where Jesus starts his Sermon on the Mount. And even if you just look at like the little section headers, you'll get a sense for the outline of his Sermon on the Mount. So he's getting started, and he starts famously with the Beatitudes. Um, he goes on to uh, call us to be, because we are, salt and light for the world. So those who follow him are to be salt and light of the earth. And then he actually gets into explaining how all of the laws that he's gonna lay out, all of the um, things that we're called to obey in scripture, he is the fulfillment of them. He perfectly obeys and follows all commands. He's the only true person that does that. And so you have basically from verses one through 20, in chapter five, it's almost like an introduction. It's the indicative portion of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And then, starting in 21, he shifts to the imperatives. He's getting into, okay, practically, what I want you to do, what I want you to be paying attention to in your own life, what I want you to change. These are the sins I want you to be aware of. And then, what are the very first two things that he brings up? Anger, and if you read the verses, he's talking about speech, angry speech, and then lust. Those are the very first two things that Jesus talks about too in the Sermon on the Mount. I just thought that was really interesting. Um, so we have here both Jesus and Paul addressing and prioritizing these two particular sin patterns. Um, I think both men are focusing on them because, like I already said, they reveal our hearts almost better than anything else does. If you want to know how you're doing spiritually, I would argue that one of the best ways that you can do that is to look at how are you are doing in fighting these two specific sin patterns. Um, but more on that in, in a couple of minutes. I wanted to point that out quickly um, just so that we have a sense where Paul is going in the next couple verses. But let's keep reading. So let's get back to Colossians 3. Let me read verses five through seven. He says this, put to death therefore what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. All right. So Paul starts by addressing lust here. As new creations, we are to kill the lust that was so common in our old lives. And notice that Paul is listing the sins in a way that starts from the most external manifestations of them to working deeper to the heart behind all of them. I think it's really interesting how he kind of lists the sins here. Um, I mean, just look at it. He, so he starts with sexual immorality. That, that word in the Greek that he's talking about is referring to ex, like explicit sexual activity that is not permitted. So he's talking about like adultery, things like that. So it's, you are externally, you are doing this sin with others. So it starts with the most external manifestation of it, 
And then gets to impurity, passion, evil desire. So it's getting deeper into the heart behind what is leading ultimately to that immorality. And he ends with covetousness. Isn't that interesting? What leads to sexual immorality is covetousness, greed. Sexual immorality is ultimately rooted in the heart position heart condition of greed or covetousness, as I just said. At its core, lust is our desire for something that isn't ours. You know how I mentioned that sexual sin reveals our hearts almost better than anything else? It's because of this. This is why. Your sexual sin reveals how content you are with what God has given you in this life. Let, let's be clear, though, I do want to focus a little bit more and be explicit on this. Let's be clear about what sexual immorality is. When Paul says that, he means the same thing as every other biblical author. It is any sexual activity or pursuit committed outside the context of a marriage between one man and one woman. That is the understanding of sexual immorality in the Bible. Therefore, sexual purity means not being sexually active until marriage to someone of the opposite sex. And it means that from that point forward, only having that form of intimacy with that person. You guys, in this day and age, that concept of purity sounds laughable to the world around us. Um, Our society has normalized this kind of immorality to the point that it's considered a joke to be pure and pursuing biblical norms today. It's really unfortunate. I just think about like the premise, this movie's pretty old, so I'm dating myself with this, but just think about the premise of the movie, like 40 year old version. It's just like the whole idea of remaining celibate until marriage is ridiculous and assumed to not happen in this day and age. But New City, we cannot embrace that worldview. It's foreign to the Bible. That's foreign to God. Desiring intimacy is natural. God designed us for intimacy in many forms, both sexual and not. But he's also designed us to experience it in proper ways and proper contexts for the greatest joy and satisfaction and pleasure to be experienced through it. The problem is that our sinful nature causes us to question that very design those boundaries that he's laid up, we question them. What is actually unnatural begins to feel right. Our world tells us that you can't truly be happy without sexual expression and to be able to have as much liberty in that area of your life as you can have. It's tempting to think that way. Going outside of God's given bounds might feel good, but that doesn't mean it actually is good for us. That's the problem. We ultimately have to ask ourselves something. Does God really know what is best for me? That's what we have to ask ourselves. At the end of the day, it comes down to whether or not we trust that he knows what is best for us because he is our creator and he designed us to live and to experience life in a certain way. We cannot trust ourselves We can't trust our fellow sinners who have the same blind spots that we have. But we can trust the one who made and designed us. 
That's the challenge that we face in the world today. If he designed me to experience sexual expression in a specific way, I have to trust that other ways are actually harmful for me. And that's where we find the strength to be content even when we long for something that we don't or can't have. That's where the contentment issue comes in with all of this. Are we able to say, I desire something, but if it's not right for me now, if it's not right for me in this context, then it would actually be harmful for me. Then I've gotta be able to say, even if that's a desire I have, I can be content with not experiencing that. That's what gets us through temptation. That has certainly been my own personal experience. Um, And hear me when I say I'm not saying all of this as someone like shouting down from my ivory tower of marital bliss. Um, I'm single. Um, (laughs) So I haven't been married, so I haven't experienced this. Sorry, I've been talking fast and a lot. I need water. Um, So I'm single, and so this is a reality that I've needed to live in. Even more than that, I also experience same-sex attraction. My reality is that the desires I currently have are not within any life-giving bounds that God has designed for us. They never will be. I have to daily choose to reject those feelings, and it isn't easy. A lot of my grief has come from that in this life. It can feel like you've been dealt an unfair hand, but that isn't true. That's what we have to remind ourselves. That isn't true. Because remember verse six, we just read this. So he says, put to death therefore what is earthly in you. He lists out these uh, ways of viewing lust. And then he says, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. It is not an unfair hand to be dealt where you have been made aware of the temptations that will lead you to wrath. What is far worse than the hand that I have been dealt is to live a life of unrestrained sexual expression only to realize at Jesus' return that it will lead to eternity of wrath. That's what's sad. That's what's hard. We are like children who have no concept of the danger of running out into the street. The other kids tell us it's all right because they like to play out there. In fact, we live in a world that today that tells us that it's actually harming yourself if you don't go play out in the street. It's too fun not to. Well, we are lucky to have a parent who is willing to pull us away from the road, even if we don't understand why. Because ultimately, it's only a matter of time until something really bad happens. And that's what scripture is. That's what God's word is giving us is those reminders, that truth, what is right and good, so that we can walk in accordance with it. If you are listening to God's word this morning, he's lovingly pulling you away from that road. I can say a lot more on that, but let's keep going. Colossians 3, verses eight through 11. Let's look at that now. So he's just brought up lust, turning from that. Let's turn our attention to the next pattern now. He says this in verse eight, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, 
malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. So another pattern common to our old selves is anger that works, works itself out in our speech and the tearing down of others. That's what he's talking about here. In this list, I think this list is interesting because Paul kind of reverses the pattern that he said in the first one. The first one, he starts external and gets to the heart. This one, he kind of refer, reverses that and starts with the heart and goes more external. Um, I, it would only be speculation for me to consider why he does, uh, frames it that way, but just something worth noting. That's what he does. So he starts internally at the core heart issue and works outward here. So he starts anger, wrath, which leads to malice, which means leads to slander, and then ultimately obscene talk from your mouths and lying in verse nine. Um, again, our angry speech reveals our hearts because it shows how humbly we see ourselves compared to others. Notice how verse 11, in verse 11, Paul points out that we are all equal with one another. He's doing this because at the heart of our hurtful speech is a disposition of superiority and arrogance towards everyone else. We think we are better than others. Therefore, we are free to tear them down or control them. Or we lie to make ourselves appear better than those around us. Pay attention to the subtle ways that we sin in this regard. Um, I know I'm not the only one who exaggerates things to make myself seem just a little bit cooler where, where I'm sharing a story. And if, or if I am sharing a story, maybe exaggerating certain details to make it sound just a little bit more epic than the actual situation was. In those moments when we do that, we're saying the truth is not important. What is important is increasing my own personal glory. We're prioritizing ourselves, not God in his truth. Speech like that, along with sexual sins like we discussed earlier, should have no place among the people of God. It's a rebellion against him and ultimately, by it, we do ourselves harm. Now, I can see how all of this sounds. You might be looking at verses five through 11 and only see condemnation here. I get that. You are reliving past mistakes, maybe even current ones. And you feel hopeless that you can escape. It sounds like we have an impossible standard to live up to here. And that is where Paul's next passage gives us hope and strength. So I want us to turn our attention to that. Let me read verses 12 through 17 again. It says this, Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, 
in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Notice those first three words that are used to describe us in verse 12. Those, and again, this is for those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ, who have turned to him, who have put their faith in knowing that his death and resurrection is their death and resurrection. Those who are hidden in Christ, those who have died to their old trespasses and been raised with him. These are for them. We are chosen, holy, and beloved. Chosen one, yeah, it says put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, and then he starts listing, put on these things, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, so forth. We are chosen, holy, and beloved. This is maybe the most crucial part of this whole passage. We are being told to put on our new attributes because we are chosen, holy, and beloved. Pay attention to the grammar here. Do you see that? We don't become kind, compassionate, patient, and so forth to become chosen, holy, and beloved. He's not saying do those things so that you may be chosen, holy, and beloved. He's saying you are chosen, holy, and beloved. Therefore, live these things out. We are already chosen, holy, and beloved. Therefore, we live that way. This is the thing that makes Christianity, Christianity unlike any other religion in the world. Christians are not those who do good things to earn salvation. That is one of the world's most misunderstood like pictures of Christianity. We aren't a bunch of people here coming together, rallying each other to do good things so that we can earn God's favor. That's not Christianity. That's not why we're here together. We don't do them to earn his favor. We do good because we know we already have it. He loves us first and that enables and empowers us to do good. Every other religion treats good deeds as currency. If you do enough you will earn enough spiritual money to buy salvation. That's how every other religion in the world basically views salvation. You do enough good, you get enough spiritual currency, you can pay for salvation, basically. That's it in a nutshell. Christianity though, in Christianity though, the whole point is realizing that you're already bankrupt and you'll never earn enough money through your good deeds to be able to earn salvation, to pay for it yourself. Instead, Jesus, our great benefactor, came to earth and paid the price of salvation for us. That is the Christian message. And in fact, he gives us so much wealth in the form of the Holy Spirit and the endless blessings that we are to receive in this life and in the age to come that we are able to give basically our money away freely to those around us. That is the good that we get to live out to the world. Before having Jesus, we would covet, control, and tear down those around us because we felt like we had to protect ourselves. We sought to surpass others because we thought that we had nothing, that we would be nothing if we weren't at the top. 
It's how so many people go about their daily lives. We see glory as a zero-sum game, so we have to take it for ourselves or else someone else is gonna get it. That's how a lot of people live their lives. Because of our perceived lack, we become selfish. The message of Christianity obliterates that, though. We know that we have an inheritance and a worth that cannot be taken from us. So we are able to be otherworldly in our compassion, in our generosity, in our humility. We can raise up others without feeling any threat that we lose when they win. That is Christianity. Friends, in Jesus, you have been given a new life. Temptation still stands at the door of your heart, but you really aren't the same person that you once were. Lean into that. Lean into the strength that Jesus offers you in the Holy Spirit. He has given you promises and his church. He's given you each other to help you fight the good fight of faith. Rely on the love that God has given you and will never take away from you. You have a new heritage and in a sense a new language to speak with your life. We are assured that we have everything we need in Christ. Therefore, instead of being greedy and lustful, we rely, we can really be content and pure. Instead of being arrogant and angry towards others that comes out through our speech, we can be generous and humble. The confidence of what we have in Jesus frees us to live as those marked by love and thankfulness, like these verses describe. That isn't always going to be easy. Actually, most of the time, it's going to, it isn't gonna be easy. It's gonna be really hard. But we don't have to rely upon ourselves to make that happen. Again, you aren't shaping yourself into a new creation. You've already been made one by God. You're just stepping out into your new skin, in a sense. Now, I want to conclude with um, a quote from C.S. Lewis. Uh, Lewis was famous for his Chronicles of Narnia. Everyone's heard of that. But not everyone knows that he actually wrote a lot of Christian nonfiction as well. Um, he was incredibly gifted with words um, and imagery. And one, of, one quote that he has, um, a famous one, uh, he does such a good job of cap capturing what we have in Jesus as new creatures. He says this, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition, with infinite joy that is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. New city, let's embrace the new life we have been given. Don't settle for the things that this world tells you are good for you. Let's trust our God and our creator. Let's live according to his good design. Let's courageously live as men and women of light. For those who follow our God, an eternity of pleasure and joy beyond anything we can comprehend awaits us. Let's believe that each and every day. You are a new creation destined for glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word as I prayed at the very beginning. The truths that we just looked at are so precious to be reminded.
Thank you give, that you give these promises and reminders um, through hundreds of pages of text that we get to look at as often as we want. Thank you for giving us Jesus. Jesus, thank you for facing death and enduring the cross on our behalf so that we could be a new creation in you. Help us, Holy Spirit, to walk each day in that new reality. Help us to know with confidence that we are new men and women and to live as such. And for those who are still wrestling with Christianity, still wondering about who this Jesus is that we talk about here, open their eyes to his beauty. Help us all to worship and revere him together. We are here this morning for your glory, Jesus. I pray this in your name. Amen. So now we're going to enter a time of three things. Reflection, remembrance, and rehearsal. Um, First, we're going to reflect. We're going to reflect on ways that we still cling to our old selves. Perhaps you aren't a Christian yet. What's keeping you from Jesus? And if you are one, in what ways do you still doubt that you are a new creation? What would it look like for you to put those doubts to rest? Let's reflect on how we can better embrace being a new creation in Christ. Then after taking time in silent reflection, we're going to go to remembrance through the Lord's Supper. We remember through the Lord's Supper um, as Christians as a means of memorializing the suffering that Jesus endured on the cross for us. So just a word of instruction on the Lord's Supper. We've got two stations up at the front. There's bread. You'll take a piece of bread. There's a cup of juice. You can dip your bread in the, in the juice and either take it there or return to your seat. And when we take the Lord's Supper, we're remembering by the bread, his body that was broken for us. And the juice or in some churches with the wine is meant to remind us of his blood that was poured out on our behalf. Our salvation, our new creation, was costly, more costly than we can ever know and understand. But Jesus paid that price for us. So during the Lord's Supper, we take time to remember that. And then after we all take the Lord's Supper, we'll we'll rehearse. We'll finally rehearse by singing together in worship. As Colossians 3 verse 16 said, calls us to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in our hearts to God. So let's do that together at the very end. Let's rejoice in the undeserved gift of, gift of new life that we have been given. New City, you are so loved. Believe that this morning.